This is Love in Public, and I'm your host, Abril Sawarso Rivera. On today's episode, Studies of the Middle East, a story in three parts. We'll be talking about UBC's brand new Middle East Studies program, how your high school history class failed you, and the importance of mentors in isolating times like these. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that today's episode is especially close to my heart. Before coming to UBC, I spent a decade of my life living on the Red Sea, just north of Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. In fact, that's actually where I'm tuning in from today, and I couldn't be more grateful to hold space today and speak on a region that I've been privileged and lucky enough to call home. But that's enough about me. I am delighted to introduce our guests today, Dr. Faroz Anwala and Natalie Armendariz. Dr. Anwala is an instructor in the Department of History at UBC and chair of the Middle East Studies minor program. He is a cultural historian of the modern Middle East who specializes in the production of modern Turkish historical imaginations in the shadow of empire. His current area of research is Turkish national memory of the Ottoman First World War, specifically the Battle of Gallipoli of 1915-16. One of my favorite things about Dr. Anwala's teachings is his rare talent as an educator to bring care and sensitivity to the histories and peoples that he teaches about. Natalie is a fourth-year UBC student, majoring in international relations and minoring in Middle East studies. She is a tandem coordinator and community animator at the Global Lounge, as well as the founding president of MESA, the Middle East Studies Student Association, an on-campus collective that strives to foster interdisciplinary conversations and events about the region. Natalie has been one of the student voices at the forefront when it comes to demanding a greater space for studying the Middle East at UBC. Dr. Nwala and Natalie, how are you both doing today? Good, thanks. Doing great, thank you. I always feel that it's one thing for me to introduce my guests and their work, but it is infinitely more interesting to hear it from them. And while I do want to delve more into your work, Dr. Nwala, and your studies, Natalie, I want to begin with my most immediate question, and that is, Knowing that both of you work quite closely with one another, how did that partnership, mentorship, connection come to be? Well, uh, maybe I, I can start. I, it was, you know, I, I was introduced to Natalie a, a couple of years ago, I, I suppose, but uh, it was about three, four years ago that that a different student, uh, Marcella Muse, uh, part of the Middle East Engagement Collective that that Natalie was also a member of, came to my office and asked me, why is there not a Middle East Studies program at UBC, for which I had no good answer. Uh, and, and you know, she, we continued that conversation for quite some time, and, and uh, her and Meek, the, the rest of the team, worked really hard to basically convince the Faculty of Arts and, and the Dean's Office that a Middle East Studies program was, was necessary, even, even vital. And I was just providing... Uh, support at, the, at that time. They did all of the research. They did all of the work for the initial work for this program. And, and uh, I'm glad to say that it was a convincing case they put forward. Uh, and, and then it, it kind of came to me after that as, as the faculty liaison and then as the, uh, the faculty member who was 
putting the program together and, and doing all of the paperwork and jumping through all of those hoops and, and creating the parameters of the program. And, and so, you know, it, it's a longer story than that, obviously, but I, I was introduced to Natalie by, by Marcella as Marcella was, was leaving, was leaving uh, UBC and graduating and moving on. Uh, and and uh, Natalie was taking over control of uh, the Middle East Engagement Collective. And so that's where we started talking by email and and just chatting about the future, the the future and all of the possibilities for for a Middle East Studies program at UBC and and what uh, you know. Then we started talking about a student association and and Natalie uh, took the reins on on all of that. So maybe I'll, I'll turn it over to her and she can tell her side of the story. Yeah, thank you for that. That's basically covering the gists of it. Um, it's on Marcella's. She was served as the liaison between uh, Meek and, and Professor Anwala at the time. So as the whole team was actually, they were all graduating or close to graduating that year. So I was the only one that could kind of carry on after that. So that's when I got in, we got in, or Marcella introduced uh, Feroz and I to each other. And that's when the conversations, like he said, started of like, what what can student engagement look like as to be a part of the Middle East Studies program? And how can we keep that momentum going of what was created with Meek, especially during that um, foundational year where all our research was done and all the outreach from Meek was basically done and motivated so many students to really show their interest and um, tell us what they were interested in and how um, how much they wanted this program to come about. And that also coming from faculty who really wanted to keep that momentum going. So that was kind of the motivation as well to connect with Feroz and keep the student body um, rolling on that on that car of let's keep making this change and let's keep making this work and see where it can go from here. So momentum, I love it. I love it. Part of re the reason that I asked that question definitely comes from a place of selfishness. I find that with the isolating nature of this pandemic and the setup of remote learning, I'm definitely missing out on that point of connection with some of my professors. And I can imagine that I'm not the only one. Would either of you have any advice for students who are listening and might relate to that sentiment? How would you suggest that they go about finding a mentor who nurtures their passions, makes them feel seen, and I think just as importantly, can speak to their context. Well, it's, it's tough. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm trying to imagine myself as an undergraduate student uh, a long time ago now. And honestly, I, I don't think I approach too many professors the way that Martella approached me, you know, and, and, and made her case with me. But I think what I would take from that experience there is that I was so excited that there was a student who was so excited about the area that I work in, you know, it was, it was infectious. And I, that enthusiasm, if you can bring that, if you can bring the, this passion that you feel for whatever area of study it might be, for whatever cause you might be advocating for, uh, you bring that passion and that enthusiasm to a professor and, and odds are, and particularly if they work in that area or on that area, they are going to be equally excited by it, about finding a student who they can work with, who they can collaborate with on, on a project. It, it's, it's rare. It, it happens so, so rarely, and I wish it happened more frequently. 
Speaking a bit more also to the, I guess the student side, because yeah, I'm not one to really reach out much, but I think some things that really stick out stick out to me when I'm just listening to others is the approach to the topic at hand. If if what really sticks out to me is how are they approaching the topic and what's their um, because how are they thinking about it? Like, are they being critical about it? Is it mainstream? Um, are they expressing their the way they came to that topic? I think that's one of the things that really sticks out to me and that I really appreciate hearing, especially when I hear about the struggle of the topic. Because um, it just, I think one of the barriers that students see with for potential mentors and professors is that it's intimidating that maybe I don't have enough knowledge you know I, I don't want to talk to a prof on all this when I might <laughs> I might not know enough and I might make a fool of myself so for me it's more so looking at how they're thinking about it and um, how they're approaching it and how how are they offering themselves if they are offering themselves to potentially talking about it, more having a conversation rather than a mentorship. Like most of the time, I think these mentorships can foster from conversations that you have with each other rather than uh, explicitly asking for uh, something from them. So I think really thinking about that, like if they really appreciate the way they're approaching the topic and how they're thinking about it, and they find similarities where they feel comfortable reaching out, I think then that's when when making that initial contact, you know, let the let the mentor possible mentor know what stuck out to them when they heard what they were speaking about or reading um, what they wrote, and basically ask yourself. So the student asking themselves, like, what do I want from this partnership? What do I want from this mentorship? Um, know your goals. Know what you want to talk about. Um, and if there that's not clear as well, then that's where I think the comfort comes in. If if you're comfortable with talking with this professor or possible mentor on the on the matter and basically being a little bit more open with yourself about it. So I think that's like probably the best. It's not a clear approach, but those are like some key things that kind of stick out to me when, when I'm looking at this topic. Well, I was just going to kind of follow up on that, you know, something that I, I try to do more and more in my courses is, is make it known that I'm available for those kinds of conversations, you know, not necessarily about any kind of initiative or program, but just, for students who want to come and chat about the Middle East, you know, whatever it is, current events, history, they want to share something personal that they've experienced, which often, you know, often is the case. And the classroom is not always the most inviting arena for those kinds of conversations. You know, students might not feel that that's the place or they might feel uncomfortable sharing those kinds of things or or talking about something that's close to their heart, but they they still need, and this is something I get the sense more and more over the last few years here, is they still need an outlet. They still need someone to talk to and to listen to their experiences. And and, and from that, I, I found um, that a lot of students do come to my office hours, or uh, as, as you know, as you both know from my course last semester, that I set aside extra time for people to just come and talk about a specific issue to do with the Middle East or, or country or so forth. And, and from those conversations, relationships are, are built. And I've, I've already had students this semester from last semester come to me and, and talk about the Middle East, but also um, make suggestions for what they would like to see in the future as regards Middle East studies at, at UBC, which is just 
it's wonderful. It's it's really really wonderful. So you know, in part, I'd say it's it's about professors also making themselves available and and making students know, letting students know that that they're open open to hearing their thoughts. You know, it's it shouldn't just be unidirectional. Yeah, I love what you bring up about that bi-directionality when it comes to a lot of these connections. And and Natalie, what you have put so beautifully, how we as students often come to these feeling that we are coming from a point of deficiency that we don't know enough and instead leaning into that and making that a point of opportunity. Yeah, I definitely remember one of the first times I went to office hours, I did a little bit of studying beforehand on the conversation that I wanted to bring because I was just, I was nervous. I did not want to sound dumb, you know, basically. So, but yeah, I think like um, Dr. Anwala has mentioned, it's it's nice hearing from professors that they make themselves available like that and offering themselves for a conversation that they're willing to either facilitate or even have with us. Um, it's definitely breaking down the barriers that a lot of students have. Absolutely. I want to dive more deeply into the work that both of you do at UBC and also the origin stories behind your passion for the Middle East. Dr. Anwala, how did you find yourself teaching Middle East studies? I would love to hear about your connection to the region and the journey that brought you here. It's it's a bit of a, a winding one, I suppose. I did my undergrad at the University of Victoria in the Department of History there, and I to be frank, what, what, what it was a little aimless. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and, you know, it, it was somebody else who, who pushed me into the honors program there, which was amazing. And, and it, it actually changed, changed my life in a way because I felt challenged in, in a way that I'd never been before. But in essence, you had to write a thesis for, <laughs> for this honors program. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. But I, I actually, my first choice was to do Soviet history and Russian history. But the person who teaches that was on sabbatical, so I did Middle East history instead. <laughs> it's, it's not the most inspiring story right there, but uh, you know that's just the way life is sometimes. And and uh, I loved it. I got really into it. I, I went into a master's program and traveled throughout the Middle East, did research there, and I, I didn't know I wanted to have an academic career at that point. Even I was I was really inspired by a lot of the things that I saw and, and really dismayed by a lot of other things that I, I saw there. And so I was considering a whole range of other options. I knew I wanted to do something with the Middle East or in the Middle East, but it wasn't academia at that point. I, I Eventually, I did decide to go into a, a doctoral program and, and, and made my decision that I wanted to pursue a, an academic career. And, and then uh, I was very fortunate to come back to uh, Vancouver, where I I grew up in large part and and got this position here at UBC. So again, a bit of a winding road. And the rest is history. Yeah, exactly. Natalie, you've also had a unique journey. You grew up in a U.S.-Mexico border town, El Paso, Texas. You moved countries for university. You're bilingual in English and Spanish, and you've started picking up Arabic. Tell me about that. How did you make a connection to a culture that is so different to your own? And I'm also curious about your personal identity as a Mexican-American and how that's affected your role as president of the Middle East Studies Student Association. Yeah, so some big questions there. I So the story of me, I guess, picking up Arabic and first getting interested in the quote-unquote Middle East is... I there was a student program, student summer program at my local university that was offering a language 
um, summer program for a couple of weeks. I think it was about six weeks and the options were Portuguese and Arabic. And for me, I considered Portuguese a little bit similar to Spanish where it wasn't as unfamiliar to me with the alphabet per se. And Arabic was completely different, completely foreign to anything I had known or was experienced to. So I love to be a little challenging and challenge myself to learn a new language that I didn't even had no idea how to read the script. So that's where I first started learning Arabic. And it's funny that you mentioned um, how I made a connection to a culture so different from mine. I actually found the opposite. I found it very similar to my own culture. Um, I grew up in a Mexican family. We're, we're all American, but um, are we very much tied to Mexican traditions and culture. So that kind of center on family and hospitality was very, very similar to what I was learning in the classroom setting of the Arabic culture, Arab language, and as well as like Islamic culture. So there was a lot of ties I was making compared to comparisons that were different. It wasn't so much how we were different. It was more how we were alike and seeing a culture very similar to mine, but also being exposed to a language that was completely different to anything I had known and heard uh, phonetically. And so when it came down to getting more interested into the region, I grew up with a lot of media, especially in the U.S., around the Middle East and all the complications that the U.S. was getting themselves into over there. So it was interesting growing up because I always checked the box of Hispanic or Latino on the ethnicity question. But then when it came to the race, I had to choose between white, black, Native or Native American, which I had none of. So when that came into thinking about the Middle East, it was more what boxes are having to be checked with the quote unquote Middle East and people from there, um, from the American perspective, from the U.S. perspective, which is very limiting and is very st stereotypical based off the experiences they've had in the region. So when... In, in terms of it affecting my role um, or influencing my role as the president of MESA, it was more me pretending, or I should say not pretending, to be an expert on the region. I have always approached the region with very minimal knowledge. I pretend I don't know anything about it because I think from, from youth and especially growing up, I've known all the wrong things about it rather than all the right things about it. I think that that part of deconstructing the stereotypes has really hit me hard when it comes to my role in MESA. And I try and really push myself to highlight more on offering space for others to help deconstruct those stereotypes. But then also me taking a step back on the typical role of a president, which is often seen as more of an up-down method. I like to take a very horizontal approach to the executive team because I think there's a lot to learn from others. And especially our team, who's a mix of people from um, different countries that are associated with the region, but then others who are just very interested in learning more like me. Um, that diversity is, I really like to to foster. And I think there's lots to learn from each other. So in terms of my, I, my own identity influencing my role, I think it's more just 
being able to take a step back from who I am and not thinking so much like I shouldn't be in this role because I don't, I'm not from the region, but more so create a space for others to speak on their own identity and their own experiences and their own learnings and encourage others to also be open-minded to that learning and deconstructing the stereotypes that are associated with the quote-unquote Middle East. I really love that, Natalie. That's, uh, I mean, it, it, it made me, you're, you're bringing back all sorts of memories of my undergraduate degree right now, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. I, uh, you know, with, with the honors program and, and when, I, when I started working on, on the Middle East in, in my honors thesis and, and taking more courses on, on the Middle East, I, I remember it as such a humbling experience because I, I was the same. Uh, I had all sorts of misconceptions about the reason, region, and I, I will admit that I think I started studying it for the wrong reasons as well, right? You, you have these certain ideas uh, about the Middle East and, and, and what the people there are all about and, and so forth. And I was just so, so wrong about them. And, and some of that has to do with my, my own identity and background and coming from a, a small ethno-religious community in, in India that has these, these ancient Iranian roots and, and a lot of the, the kind of propagandizing that happened through that community about, say, Muslims and, and Islam. Um, and, and so I remember in, in my undergraduate degree, uh, all of these, these ideas about the Middle East just exploding in my face and um, in the, in the best way possible. Uh, and it's, it's, I think it, it changed me uh, in, for the better in, in a number of ways. I, I hope at least it changed me for the better in a lot of ways because it it made me more humble going forward in, in terms of what I thought I knew about the world and, and other people. Yeah, I really like this this theme about humility. Humbling yourself and coming into scholarship with this perception of yourself as a novice and how your lack of knowledge is a good thing and can be a good thing. In the second part of our conversation, I want to focus on this overarching idea of how your high school history class failed you. I want to take time to speak about misconceptions about the Middle East and how production of knowledge on the region has been shaped by power and colonialism. I do want to note the diversity of our own personal histories. Dr. Nwala, correct me if I'm wrong, but you grew up here in Canada under the Canadian system. Natalie, your High school history class came to you through an American lens. And even though I grew up in the Middle East, my understanding of history was dictated by the International Baccalaureate Program. Reflecting back on your learning, what is your impression of your high school history class then? Were there gaps and silences when it came to who and what was represented in your textbooks? And the question at the heart of it for me is, what are the ways in which your high school history class failed you? I mean, at, wow, a while ago too. But um, like you, I was also, I, I was part of the IB program. So not only was I under an American lens, I was also under a European lens because our textbooks came from kind of the headquarters. So more reflecting back on my impression of my history classes then, wow, did they really fail me? I don't think I even ever remember talking about the Middle East from a Middle Eastern perspective in any part that was mentioned about the Middle East was on key events like uh, the World War II, perhaps. Um, I don't even think. And then once Israel came, so the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, 
and the evolution of that. And then we just went to Cold War. So it was also from a very American, because I did, I did history of the Americas. We didn't, at the time, our, our, um, the high school I went to didn't have very many options that we could study with the IB program. So history of my Eric, of, of the Americas was my only option to do. And with that, there was basically no conversation on the Middle East about events that was happening there or the people there. It was all how Western powers were interacting with the region. So huge failure, I think. Um, I didn't learn anything in high, in high school about it. It was really just what I was hearing on the news and any additional research I did on the side. So I think it was a huge hit when I came to university and started learning a lot. But to answer the heart of your question of what is, how did it, how did it, um, what are the ways in which it failed us? I think it failed me, but I think in, apart from it being a curriculum um, issue, I think there's more at root here because with the high school I went to, it was a public uh, public high school, but even though we had IB students who were very dedicated to their academic work, uh, wanting the good grades and all that learning, there's also the students that weren't as uh, dedicated to the academic work. So even if there was no Middle East studies or Middle East focus on our history courses, I think even debunking the stereotypes within our high schools is something that's hard because students aren't always paying attention. So there's also the exposure to the media that constantly dominates it. So even trying to debunk those stereotypes goes further than the education and what we learn in high school and the curriculums were, were given at that stage. But on that note, I'll, I'll hand it off to Dr. Walla. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is doubly hard for me, I would say, literally doubly hard, I think. Um, but no, I, I, I was thinking about this this question, and I, I remember, I think it was grade 11, I was also in, in IB, uh, and in grade 11, we talked about the Middle East, but like you, Natalie, it was this very cursory look at it in, in a world history course, and I can't remember the specific details of what was taught, but I remember that it was almost exclusively focused on conflict. And I remember, I remember more the student conversations outside of class that happened. And again, we didn't spend long in it, but I remember very well somebody saying something like, oh, just blow it all up and start again, you know, which is horrible. Um, And, and you could chalk that up to some careless bluster on the on the part of that uh, that student, but I think it tells you, tells me, tells us something about the education we received or or the lack thereof there. Because in focusing only on conflict in the Middle East, we received these ideas that the Middle East was all about conflict and 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 primarily religious conflict too. And I, I think there was very little attempt to understand the roots of certain conflicts from, say, an economic standpoint, or to examine the role of imperialism and colonialism in fostering or exacerbating sectarian tensions and divides. And there was, I would, I'm pretty confident in saying that there was, there was no attempt to humanize the diverse 
peoples of the region. It was this real macro level surface analysis that didn't tell us anything about the diversity there, how people lived, their joys, their pains, their hopes, desires. And, and we certainly weren't, as, as Natalie said, um, similar in a similar vein, we certainly weren't hearing, listening to people from the region themselves. And, you know, I'm thinking about this now and I was, and I'm thinking, man, uh, there were, there were Middle East, stu- Middle Eastern students in that class there, you know, at the school. And, and I just wonder what was going through their head now when they were hearing all of this. It, it just pains me. Dr. Anwala, you've already touched upon this with your last answer, but I want to talk more about the ways in which we learn about the Middle East implicitly or explicitly, be it through formal education or depictions in the media. And I want to hear from both of you what you feel is the single most dangerous assumption that's made about the Middle East and its people. If you can even name one, and if that's too difficult, what would you say are the most dangerous assumptions? Maybe Natalie can take one and I'll do another. <laughs> Natalie, why don't you go ahead? Um, yeah, okay. So I also grew up with a lot of exposure to the U.S. government employees, and that includes military. So one of the things that I constantly heard or was the conversation around terrorism. And so that, I think, had to... It was definitely one of my motivators for learning more about the Middle East, uh, because I felt like I wanted to defend them and the Islamophobia, if Islamophobia that was happening in the U.S. with them saying all Muslims are terrorists. And first of all, that being super limiting because the Middle East is not comprised of just Muslims, um, nor is <laughs> they're all terrorists. So I think definitely that notion of all Muslims being terrorists, but then also the Middle East being entirely composed of terrorists is one of the most dangerous assumptions that I've seen being fostered within, at least um, within the American context, but then also within the military context of U.S. officials, because I've I've definitely heard conversations on army bases, on um, marine bases, where they're just like, basically what Dr. Anwala mentioned earlier, just bomb them all. Like, they're all bad. So I think that is definitely the one of, one of the most dangerous assumptions, and I would say it's one of the dangerous because they're training people that believe that, and they take that to heart. So that dehumanization is huge for who's getting involved, why they're getting involved, and they think that they're going to protect um, their own people and country because they're all terrorists. So I think I'd have to say that from firsthand experience and conversations I've been a part of, I think that is one of the most dangerous assumptions that I've been exposed to. I want to deviate for a second before, Dr. Nwala, before you answer, because I know that there's a connection between the U.S. military and regional studies, studies like Asian American studies, Middle Eastern studies. And I wonder if you could speak to that as well. <laughs> um, not more from what I'm learning from Dr. Nwala. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, we're, we're actually talking about this right now in the course that, that Natalie's in, which is the Middle East Studies core course, and the Middle East Critical Questions and, and Debates. And, and the whole whole part one of that course is, is, is dedicated to studying the dark and sordid history of, of Middle East studies. Uh, we, we're talking about 
this Cold War period that I think you're you're referencing, but we go further back to talk about the history of, of Orientalism and uh, how it developed, why it developed, basically served to justify all sorts of atrocities and violence and colonial endeavors uh, in the Middle East and, and elsewhere. Uh, but yes, you're, you're right. With the Cold War, the Second World War and the Cold War, that's where we see the emergence of what we call Middle East studies and all of these different area studies, uh, area studies groups and, and institutes and so forth. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very disturbing history, as, I, as I've been relaying to the students in, in that course, not just because scholarship is tied to strategic aims, to American strategic aims, because even before that, uh, as I've t- as I've discussed, its scholarship was was tied to British strategic aims and and so forth, and and you couldn't really disconnect them in a viable way. But what's really uh, troubling about this period in the Second World War and the Cold War is this complicity of scholars with government, military, intelligence agencies, and then corporations and and, and foundations and. The scholars, a lot of these scholars saw nothing wrong with working to further American strategic interests in the Middle East and and elsewhere. And and so scholarship was in large part, not exclusively, but in large part subordinated to that cause and focused on creating the kind of quote unquote stability that benefited the, the United States, focused on modernizing and developing uh, the region for that aforementioned purpose. Uh, so, you know, that's part of this part of this history. And in the course, I'm, I'm just relaying how scholars fell out of favor with government because, uh, well, they started more and more to refuse to do that kind of work. But that being said, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk about and I'm going to keep talking about in the course is the ways in which this early history, this really troubling early history of Middle East studies and, and area studies continues to inform the questions we ask about the region continues to inform research agendas and just these unquestioned assumptions that that lie at the heart of still so much scholarship and definitely of, of public public discourse it we haven't gotten away from it yet and and you know that's one of the things that i'm hoping the middle east studies program at, at ubc can can help to do i think that actually provides the perfect segue for what i have been looking forward to talking about this entire conversation and that is UBC's brand new Middle East Studies minor program. Both of you played a huge role in bringing the program to life, and it is the first of its kind in British Columbia. Dr. Nwala, you have said that this is a program that explores one of the most misunderstood regions in the world. I completely agree with you, and I'd love to hear more from both of you about the story behind this program, what it took to get it off the ground, and what the mission behind it is. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it took a while to get it off the ground, and, and that has to do with the university system and, and, the, uh, and the province and, and getting basically buy-in from all sorts of constituents across, across UBC and, and, and then in the provincial ministry and, and, and so forth. So it's a, it's a long process in that regard. But I guess what I would say and, and focus on is that it's just a really exciting time. And, and the, way I, the way I see it is that despite this troubling history that I just talked about uh, of area studies that personally, at least, and I think there's some students, of course, who, who share who share this opinion that Middle East studies, even area studies at large, but maybe I'll focus on Middle East studies can be a productive force still. But 
we need to resist that history. We need to know it. We need to understand it, what it's done to the field and and to various disciplines as well. And then we need to resist that and we need to come up with a new way forward. And, And that's why this is so exciting because we are building this from the ground up and it really is whatever we want it to be. Um, and, and so, you know, one of the things that I'm still working on and, and still asking students about, and, and in the core course, I'm, I'm literally asking students as part of their assignment to come up with new initiatives for, for MESS that, that actually work against that, that history that I talked about. And, and so involving them in it. But, you know, for, for me, I'll, I'll say a few things that, that really matter. And in trying to shape MESS as a, as a different site, a different kind of site of learning. One, of course, it, it should. It can't all be about conflict, right? It, I not, it's not to say that we should ignore that part of it, because of course there is conflict, and we can see that in the Middle East right now. So we need to talk about it, and and when we talk about it, it needs to be in a manner that undoes some of those harmful stereotypes that that Natalie mentioned and works against those dominant paradigms that still influence scholarship on the region. We need to diversify at. at at UBC as well in terms of the curricular offerings for students. And and these are courses, I think, that could be on the Middle East, loosely defined, as I think it should be. And, you know, one that talks about it at different local, national, global levels, its intersections with other regions, courses that shatter, shatter those commonplace understandings of the region as a region and of its its diverse populations. I mean, I could go on and on about things that I want to do, but maybe I'll maybe I'll talk about just a couple other things that I I'd, I'd like for from from uh, mess to be. One is I I see potential for it to be an interdisciplinary and intersectional hub on on campus and I don't want MESS to just draw together people who are interested in the Middle East. Of course, there is that aspect where we can create a really nice community here, a supportive community for people who are interested in the Middle East. But my hope is that UBC MESS as a field can engage deeply and substantively with other fields across campus, and we can listen to each other and teach each other about how our fields intersect. And ways in which we can enrich each other and address each other's shortcomings, you know, because every field has these, has these shortcomings. We, most of these fields have troubled histories. And, and so what can we offer to each other? And in that way, I, again, I, I hope MESS can be a, a productive force that actively contributes to other fields and departments and disciplines at, at, at UBC. And I'm working on some initiatives to do with this right now. The other thing I, I would say is I really hope and I, I think student, a lot of students are on board with this, that, that MESS can be a site of and, and for social justice work, a place where we, we're not going to shy away from those difficult subjects and the difficult conversations. Also, though, a place where we reject or at very least complicate those, I would say at least, misleading calls for neutrality and objectivity to, that work to preserve status quos and, and leave power where and as it is and and so you know one of the things i talk about in my course and that i want the program hope the program want the program to be centered by is this is a critical pedagogy of hope where we cultivate belief in a more just fairer world and then more importantly figure out how to work together to achieve something along those lines and and it's not to say that the goal is the, the most important thing it's that coming together to to do that kind of work passionately and and with an, an ethic of care 
And one more thing I'll say, and then I'm going to turn it over to Natalie because it's related, I suppose, is that I do want this to be a student-driven program. I, I, it came from students. It, it was pushed for by students. They did the initial research for it. And, and so I want them to be deeply involved. And, and so again, you know, in the course, I'm, I'm consulting with students and getting them to generate ideas. And I'm going to continue on any initiative that I'm thinking of doing. I'm going to be consulting with MESA uh, about it and really just try my best to listen to students and, and what they want for the program. So maybe now I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet and listen to Natalie. Dr. Nwala, it's funny because you are talking about hope. And as I'm listening to you, I feel ignited. And I'm also a believer in the crazy potential for this program at UBC. Natalie, I would also love to hear about your aspirations for what comes next. What do you hope that this program could become? How do you hope it's going to serve students and faculty? And how might it best amplify the voices of BIPOC peoples? Yeah, so... um... I think one of the things that I would say is amplifying the language courses. I think language is one way to show the diversity of the region. I think I think a lot of students come to or they read Middle East studies and like most of us at this time, we're coming to the study for the wrong reasons. We're coming because we hear conflict, 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 and we want to know why is there so much conflict in the region? Why? Why can't the people there just get it together, you know? So I think those questions are often what's bringing students to these arenas. And I think these are this is the perfect opportunity to, like uh, P- Professor Anwala said, debunk those stereotypes and show them what it really is. So I think offering more language courses is another way to show the diversity of the region and the, um, the different peoples that are there. Because it's not just all Muslims. It's not just all Middle Easterners that's not even really a term because it's so, it's so broad. So I think also jumping on to what Professor Anwala had to say about bringing more interdisciplinary courses to, to the matter. I think there's so much more to talk about the Middle East rather than just history, politics, than um, even, even Asia. I know there's Asia studies going on with like film. That's, I think that's a huge course that most people might not think of when they think of the Middle East, but there's lots to see with the film And I think it also shows a way for empowerment um, with the region for them to create their own image rather than having the image that has already been placed on them because of the way the West has interacted with them. So I think that's one of the reasons I have most hope in this, um, in this becoming a part of UBC, because it just helps more students learn about the broadly construed region and them ask the questions, why did I come here? Why did I think the things I thought? So really breaking those down. And also I think it offers a chance for people from the region to have their own platform, for us to hear scholarship from, from scholars that are from Turkey, from Lebanon, from Jerusalem, from basically all the countries that are associated with the Middle East and then create, like I said, their own identities, um, have their own platforms to advocate and empower themselves rather than us, once again, putting our knowledge onto them. Absolutely. And Natalie, you have mentioned how filmmaking can be a source of empowerment for the region, but it can also be a source of disempowerment and a way of perpetuating uh, stereotypes about the region. And I've been joking with myself all week that I will be so dissatisfied with myself if I finish this interview and I don't talk about one thing. 
and that is my favorite childhood movie, the 1992 Disney animated film, Aladdin. <laughs> it took me taking your course, Dr. Anwala, to realize that this film that I have such an emotional attachment to is fraught with problematic misconceptions about the Middle East. I wonder if you could briefly touch upon some of the issues with Aladdin and more importantly, why it is so important for us to be more critical of the media that we consume. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's funny. I, I don't remember a ton about my childhood, but I do remember this. On my ninth birthday, my parents took me and a few of my friends to see Aladdin in a movie theater. Okay, so I'm, I'm dating myself there. Okay, but nonetheless, I, I have got, I had a deep attachment to it too, you know, and I, th I think that's one of the things that's, looking back now is is really troubling and disturbing as as someone who is brown skinned and 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 so forth i i think of myself as a child watching this movie and taking on all that it depicts about the middle east and and thinking about other other kids just like me uh it's it's really it, it's shocking to me and and you know I'm having conversations with my partner of late of what movies we should be allowing our kids to see despite our attachments to it. You know, what, is it okay to show Aladdin and, uh, you know, other early Disney movies to, to our kids? And increasingly I'm saying, no, uh, I don't want my kids who, uh, you know, who are, who are biracial, but, but nonetheless, uh, I don't want them to take those ideas on. But, but in any case, I, you know, Aladdin is, is troubling in all sorts of ways. I mean, there's the really famous example of the, of the uh, opening song, which uh, was, was changed after. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, talked about it as a, as a barbaric, uh, it's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Uh, and, you know, they changed the lyrics, well, those specific lyrics later on, but kept the rest of the song and, and the rest of the movie intact. Um, I mean, it, it does present the Middle East as, as this backwards place. It, it, it reifies certain stereotypes of uh, Middle Eastern men as oppressive of, of women. Uh, you know, Middle Eastern rulers like the Sultan as just these silly figures, uh, would-be tyrants like Jafar. I, I think, you know, one of the things that I talk about with my students and it, with regards to that film is, you know, I, I've had people say to me, well, Aladdin's a Middle Eastern character. He's presented in a positive light. And I'm like, not, he's not really presented as, as Middle Eastern, you know, him and Jasmine are the only two and the genie are the only two, three characters in the film that have American accents. So what does it say that Jafar who, you know, has the, the thick eyebrows and this, uh, you know, supposedly Semitic nose and, and so forth and, and speaks in this, what, it, what would it be? Uh, half British, half <laughs> Middle Eastern, vague Middle Eastern accent. Um, and you, you compare that to Aladdin, who, uh, except for slightly darker skin color, looks like any of the other princes, I would say, from from Disney movies uh, and then speaks in an American accent. And and so you're you're implicitly getting ideas of who are the good guys and, and who are the bad guys. And and so, you know, that's just one of the things that 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 really disturbs me about it. 
but I think there's there's so so much more to that film. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually teaching a, a different course to my Vantage College students where we're spending a whole section on we're doing it's on film and history and we're spending a whole section on on Aladdin and it, and its representations. Uh, so I could go on, but maybe Natalie, if you want to talk about something that strikes you from the film, if if it was a big part of your childhood. I mean, it was, it definitely was. And I think it was sad to know how bad it was recently. I was like, oh man, that was, that was, especially with the new release of the live action one, that one, I love the songs. I don't know what I'm singing, but like, I sh- like you said, I should be critical. We should be critical. And I think another thing that comes with, especially us becoming more aware and even becoming more knowledgeable about these criticisms that we should be aware of is that even with media and movies nowadays, they're, it seems like they're almost trying to fill these gaps by getting actors who are from the region or who tick those boxes of the identity of um, a quote-unquote Middle Easterner. But then if you look at their roles, their roles are still associated with the common stereotypes that we've placed on them. So I think it's still dangerous how even now we can possibly see a more colorful picture in these movies, but they're still being perpetuated and they're still being seen in a bad light. So I think that's one thing that we should all be very critical of because it's dangerous. I think it's easy to get into. You see a more multicultural or diverse city or more multicultural diverse movie. You see all these different names um, in the credits of how many people contributed and they, they look foreign, they all look like they're coming from different regions. But then again, you're looking at like, what are the power structures that are showing, being shown within this film um, or even its production? So I think that's something that we all need to still be aware of and be critical about when we're, when we're seeing these films that bring us smiles and laughter and um, yeah, all this joy. <laughs> You are so right, Natalie. It is easy to see diversity on our screens and think that the work is over. It's a powerful note to end on. Dr. Nwala and Natalie, as we close today's conversation, I want to express how grateful I am to the both of you. Thank you for your precious time and energy and for joining me on the show today. And to all of our listeners, thanks for holding this space with us. My name is Abril Sawarsa-Rivera, And this has been Love in Public. This episode was brought to you by the Equity and Inclusion Office at UBC. It was produced and edited by Ali Carey. The music in today's episode was created by Ben Robinson. Thank you.